Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and in the words of Martin Landau, when he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Ed Wood, what a night, what a life, what everything. <laughs> That's what he said. What a night, what a life, what everything. I refer, of course, to, and this, this may be a spoiler for those of you who weren't watching, and if you weren't watching, why the hell are you listening to this? Luca Purcell won the World Championship last night. Yes, he did. But let's go back. Let's go back to the a month ago, and this is, li- well, not live, this is <laughs> recorded from a month ago. This is what Phil Yates said on this very podcast. Let's listen to this. So you need to be inspirational to win as an outsider in Sheffield. Who could possibly be inspirational? Well, the one player that sticks out to me is someone who's got an appalling record at the Crucible, Luca Russell. He's played there five times, he's lost five times, and yet he's the one player who, if he starts to buzz... He could get that inspiration going, that fire, get the catalyst to play his best, and he has won racking events in the past. Maybe he could go deep. Maybe he could go deep. Well, Phil called it correctly, of course, and don't think he's not mentioned this, by the way, at various points today. Uh, he called it. Exactly what he said is right. He got inspiration. He got on a run. Luca Purcell played brilliantly in this tournament. I mean, you have to to be world champion, obviously. But it's exactly that. He was... He was inspired, and he was inspired when he was behind, of course, against Ronnie O'Sullivan, 10-6 in the quarterfinals. He produced that extraordinary session uh, to win all seven frames. He was inspired in the semifinals against CHRWI when he was 14-5 behind. He was inspired in particular on Monday afternoon against Mark Selby, you know, four centuries in that session. And in the end, when the pressure came on, and boy did it come on, Mark Selby, you know, that's what he does, he put it on him. When it came on... He responded at the end. He made a century in the last frame to win it. Brilliant story. Luca is such a likeable player, likeable person. First winner from mainland Europe. I mean, it's pretty shameful, really, that in nearly a century, he's only the fourth winner from outside Britain. That tells you how it's been so British-dominated, British-based. That's something that needs to change. But that's uh, for another day. The fact is, he's the world champion. Uh, Belgium has a world snooker champion. That's very exciting for him for his country and I think for the sport so congratulations to him the final was fantastic it was a great spectacle um, great viewing uh, and very dramatic not quite the perfect final just because we didn't have a decider but you know we had a maximum on the first night some great snooker played by both players Selby came alive at night as he tried to turn it round he missed well first of all he missed a, a black after potting the first red in that 30 second frame and then he flew to red later, Mr. Brown to middle. That could have been crucial. Uh, but, you know, he was uh, very generous in his praise of Brussel, who, who is the world champion. By the way, this is episode 250 of the podcast. I mean, you know, we could have a, a special celebration, but I don't think we need one after the terrific world championship we've just seen. One of the best, I think, for several years, actually. I think the drama and excitement, the stories, the controversies, and above all, the standard of snooker was brilliant. Uh, 
Last year's was great as well, but there was a sort of a single narrative in a way last year. It was, will Ronnie, you know, equal the record of seven by Stephen Hendry? And Ronnie O'Sullivan did that. This year, there were lots of competing stories. Obviously, you know, some underperforming favourites was one. We had the beef between O'Sullivan and Vafai. Uh, same Vafai in round two. We had, um, obviously, see Joel Wee get into the semis, the run that Luca Brassell had. Um, you know, could Selby win a fifth? And, you know, then he's edging closer to seven. All these sort of stories were, were in the mix. The maximum uh, that Karen made and then Selby made. A lot going on. Um, a lot to enjoy, I think. And I hope everyone did enjoy it. Let's go. We're, gonna, we're doing emails and then I'll get out of your way. But uh, let's start. Well, let's start with who we normally start with. Alpha Bonzi uh, has come in with these three questions. He says, number one, I'll answer them one at a time. No event in Belgium next season. In light of Brussels' success, is that an opportunity wasted? Well, that may change, of course, Alpha, now that he's won it. I mean, there were people, players today saying, oh, we must have a ranking event in Belgium. These things don't just come together in a couple of weeks. You know, they have to be carefully planned. I know for a fact, though, that representatives from, well, the WPBSA, certainly, uh, and World Snooker Tour, have been to Belgium already prior to all this. So they have looked at Belgium. You've got to think, if there's a chance of getting one on... Um, it's it's certainly increased, let's just put it that way, what's happened. It would be a great shame if they didn't sort of cash in on that. But it's not just as straightforward as, oh, we're all going to Belgium next week. These things have to be planned. They do take months to plan. But it'd be great if that was added to the calendar, certainly. I mean, there have been ranking events, of course, in Belgium before. But now they've got the world champion. I'll say right from the off, I really hope that we promote this guy properly, uh, Luca. He is the flag bearer for the next year, really. It's his year. And we need to see him. And we need to see, actually... Players like CJ Wee a bit more as well, rather than just relying on, not to say the same old names, because that sounds disrespectful, but you know, there's, there's a little bit of a shift I think, um, has happened there, and certainly the world champion needs to be foregrounded. I'm sure he will be, um, because the way he plays, apart from anything else, people want to watch him. <laughs> uh, Alpha says, no ranking event semi finals for the class of 92. Has age finally caught up with these three exceptional players? He's talking, of course, about Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, and Mark Williams. I'd be careful to sort of say that because, I mean, if you got, when was the last time none of them were in the semis? It was actually only two years ago, 2021. So it's not, you know, a huge sort of seismic event. I, I would say this though, I thought both O'Sullivan and Higgins looked very tired in their respective quarterfinals. Certainly Ronnie in that last session looked very tired and Higgins was overhauled by Selby and, and that was, you know, I mean, that's a different sort of match in a way. The way Selby won that was different, but again, you know, they're not getting any younger. They're both, what, 48 this year. Will any of them win it again? I think O'Sullivan's probably the most likely, but not a certainty to, by any means. Um, and next year will be interesting for the rankings for Higgins. He's got a lot of points coming off. He's not got many on the, on this year's points. So, I would never write any of those guys off, but as the era of, of, of those guys winning sort of three tournaments a year gone, the answer is probably. They may still win tournaments. It's unlikely, I think, and listen, I may be wrong, and I'll be playing this clip back maybe next year. I think it's unlikely they're going to be sort of dominating seasons now. And that would be very, you know, um, surprising, I guess, at their age to do that. Question three, has China found their world champion in CJRWE? Well, not this year, obviously. I mean, he had a great chance to get to the final. It was a, it was a collapse. I don't think we can really um, skirt around that. He collapsed, but Luca put the pressure on, and that can happen. He never played at the Crucible before. Never had that big lead in, in a semi-final to get to the World Championship final. He played delightful snooker, I thought. Brilliant, see, Joey. Um, at times, he just looked unbelievable, actually. And great sort of uh, prospect to push forward. But to say, will he be world champion? Well, you know, it's hard to say that, isn't it? Because we don't even know in a year's time, will he be a top 16 player? Maybe he'll lose in the qualifiers. We don't know. But certainly, he's a great prospect, I agree. And Alpha's actually added another question here. He said, what has this World Championship done for your relationship with this great sport? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I would say, listen, I cover snooker all, all year round. I love it. But it was, it was a very enjoyable event to cover. At no point did I think, oh, I can't wait for this to be over. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was a great final night to be commentating with Neil last night. Um, very exciting, exhilarating to be in the arena for that. And... Uh, yeah, funny enough, I went out in the interval because we had to, for the for the after after final party, you had to collect a wristband from stage door. And Gary Wilkinson, former world number five, uh, sort of man stage door these days, and he was there. And just as I went to get the wristband, John Virgo walked in, 
Now, the first match I ever saw at the Crucible as a spectator was John Virgo against Gary Wilkinson. And here were the two uh, characters from that uh, from that match together. And, I mean, the match was terrible. But that's, that's by the by. I, it was my first introduction in real life to the Crucible. I'd seen it on television. But I walked into this sort of magical world. That I did the usual reaction. It's so small. I can't believe it. I was kind of in at that moment. And I've stayed in. And last night I got to commentate from the Crucible commentary box on the World Championship final. So it doesn't get much better than that. So my relationship with the sport, I would say, well, is pretty sound. Uh, <clears throat> we'll move on to... Uh, who should we move on to? See, some people think this must be planned. They think, my word, that you must surely plan these things. Uh, yeah, you're not, you're not a regular listener, clearly. Callum Law, he says... Uh, I watch snooker throughout the season and always enjoy following the game, but the World Championship really is different gravy. It's unique and special, and I think we were reminded of that over the course of those magical 17 days of the Crucible. First of all, Luca Brasell is a great champion and worthy winner. I know he's won tournaments in the past, and he's somebody we've probably all been waiting to see truly emerge in the big, biggest tournaments, and he's done it in some style. Phil Yates mentioned before the tournament he could go on a Joe Johnson-style run, and how right he was. We've already had the evidence of that, of course, on that clip I played. Seems amazing the difference one win can make. I watched Lucas' first round match <coughs> against Ricky Walden and he looked gone at nine each. But from winning that decider, he didn't look back. He was brilliant in every department against Mark Williams and the way he blasted back against Ronnie O'Sullivan and CJ Wee was sensational. And then in the final, he deserved great credit for the way he stood up to the Mark Selby onslaught. Against anyone else at 16-10, Russell would probably coast home. But Selby is cut from a different cloth, an amazing competitor. I imagine if he reflects on the final... You might say the Miss Brown to the middle at 16-15 when there's a chance of a clearance was a turning point. If you don't mind, Callum, you do continue, but I wanna, I've not got long to get through uh, the, these emails, so I'm going to just cut a little bit out. But uh, you, you say... Uh, you say I'm, I'm, you said, I've, I haven't mentioned the protest. It's probably the most bizarre incident in the history of the championship, but at least it didn't overshadow a terrific tournament, despite it being a ridiculous act. I'll say on that, by the way, um, Callum and anyone else, I've had some emails on the protest. I'm actually not going to read them out because I think, you know, I covered that last week and I don't particularly want to give them any more publicity. Some people agreed with what I said. Some people didn't. That's fine. We live in a democracy. We're all friends here. But I kind of have covered that. Uh, Callum uh, 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 finishes off. He says, on a different note, there's always talk about TV coverage, commentators, pundits, etc. But I thought both the BBC and Eurosport did a wonderful job of covering the World Championship make me feel like I was there. Credit to everyone involved. Lastly, thank you to you for this excellent podcast. I always look forward to listening. You provide a great forum for snooker fans throughout the season. I hope you have a good summer. Same to you, Callum. Thank you. Uh, we move on to James Beard. He says, can I start by congratulating Luca Bussell on a magnificent win in the World Championship? Every time I see him, uh, he reminds me about the great Alex Higgins. So attacking and fearless. But I think it's fair to say Luca uh, has a much better cue action, which means he has the potential to be much more consistent than the Northern Irishman. I also want to congratulate Mark Selby. I think he's underappreciated by far too many people. I was listening to the sports news on BBC Radio Ulster on the morning of the final, and the presenter claimed that most people watching were surprised that a player like Mark Selby was capable of making a 147. She even said it was appropriate that he happened 40 years after another grinder, her word, Cliff Thorburn, made a match with the Crucible. Of course, snooker fans know this to be complete nonsense, but it shows the mythology that surrounds Mark. Anyone who's made over 700 career centuries cannot be considered a grinder. Now, we'll get to you. you made, you've contributed, James, here to uh, some other, um, another subject, banal meetings with snooker players, which we will get to later. So I'll save that for now, if you don't mind. We'll come back to that. Joe Johnston. Not Joe Johnston. Joe Johnston. Greetings from Dublin. I've just been listening to your latest podcast this morning, so I decided to send some ramblings from my recent visit to Sheffield. Now, we always like to have people who've been to the tournaments to write in, and Joe has been. It's been 19 years since my last visit, he says, so it was well overdue return, but it had been put off a number of times over the last few years. On walking through the streets around the Crucible and Sheffield City Centre after such a long absence, it was difficult not to keep smiling and grinning to myself, thinking it was good to be back. I visited for four days this time, attending five sessions in total mainly this quarter-finals, the highlight being the Brussels comeback against Ronnie O'Sullivan. I'd expected to see <coughs> the odd player around the area over the few days due to previous experiences, and as I've heard it said many times before, that the accessibility to players, etc., in Sheffield in particular was still marvellous. But nothing could have prepared me for the number of players, officials, referees, etc., I was lucky enough to meet and get a photo with. 
These may not strictly qualify for your random meeting segment, given the location, but here goes anyway. On arriving, I headed straight to the Winter Gardens to have a peek at the BBC setup. After staring at the back of Stephen Hendry and Karen Wilson's head for about 20 minutes, they eventually got up and walked around, when I nabbed them for a selfie. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet the lovely Hazel Irvin, maybe next year. Uh, then I bumped into Matt Hewitt. Oh, these are, it's, uh, the big hitters were there. Matt Hewitt outside the Winter Gardens, who lots of your listeners will know as Pro Snooker Block. I had Matt's blog, I'd read Matt's blogs for many years before he snapped up on the WPSA and was delighted to meet the man himself. He was very welcoming and more uh, than willing to spend a few minutes chatting. So I took the opportunity to inquire if my practical namesake Joe Johnson was in Sheffield as I brought over a photo of us both with Terry Griffiths taken in golfs in 1987 but I was hoping he might sign for me. Uh, Matt suggested that Joe wouldn't be there until Thursday, semi-final day one, so I remained hopeful as I was heading home on Thursday night. Later that day... Uh, and before having even stepped inside the crucible yet, my path casually crossed with those of Sean Murphy, Luca Purcell, and a starving John Parrott rushing to the stage door with a hot pizza in tow, who all obliged the photo. Later that night, on walking down the stairs down the crucible, having watched McGill get beaten by sea, I spotted Peter Ebden a few feet away, not wanting to add insult to injury by asking for a photo after what must have been a disappointing result for him. I just offered a firm handshake with a nice to meet you, Peter, to which he kindly required, replied, you too, mate. Now, if you don't mind, you, you list a lot of other people you've met here, and, and these are a list of names. Um, but I, I wonder, you don't mention it here, I don't think, uh, Joe, because an Irish chap shouted goodbye-bye at me in the street. Now, this is a catchphrase on the on the podcast. I'm not sure that was you or not. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed your time. You seem to, uh, you seem to uh, meet a lot of people there, and... Uh, you didn't get, you didn't, get, the people will be saying, well, did he get Joe's uh, autograph or not? It seems you didn't, but uh, you met a lot of people anyway, so thank you for that. Uh, <coughs> who else we got here? Let's just uh, have a little look. Mm. Alan writes, okay, just returned from a very enjoyable weekend at the Crucible. We enjoyed four sessions over the weekend, the highlight being the wonderful performance from John Higgins in the first session versus Karen Wilson. That was incredible, wasn't he? He went 8-0. This is our third visit to the Crucible, uh, and it's becoming an essential annual event on our calendar. The overall experience was wonderful, but I thought I'd share a few suggestions. Number one, where you sit really matters. You actually get a nice, better view of the table nearer the back, where the banking better rows is steeper. For example, we had on paper what seemed the best seats of our sessions for row H for the Selby match. However, we could only see three quarters of the table. Number two, the commentary headphones are off-putting for those who don't use them you get a constant drone in the background. Perhaps they should be set up with a low level of maximum volume. Number three, the crucible lacks toilets, to put it bluntly. Perhaps they could add some portaloos for the event. All in all, a great experience, though. Where else do sportsmen get applauded for returning from the toilet between frames? Uh, and it will be some more ra- random meetings. We'll try and get to those uh, later on. Uh, as we continue here. Uh, Stuart Skinner. Uh, what a wonderful day. I've just watched the first session of Sullivan and Brussel and finished your latest podcast. Uh, what a fascinating world championship this year. A bit like the whole season, you couldn't really call winners of matches. But I've thoroughly enjoyed watching Jack Jones, CJ Wee and Anthony McGill. Really refreshing to see different faces in the later stages. I was wondering, however, why McGill doesn't occupy a top 16 place. Every year, he looks so short at the Crucible and difficult to see many beating him. But why doesn't he carry this through other tournaments during the season? Is there any rhyme or reason you can fathom that seems to be the case? <coughs> I think, well, I'll, I'll try and answer that, Stuart. I just think he doesn't put the intensity in, into the other events. Maybe the longer matches more naturally suit him, although everyone seems to say the longer matches suit them. But it is true, for sure, for sure that uh, Anthony McGill seems to fare a lot better at the World Championship than other events, and he needs to kind of sort that out because you can't really have a consistent career at the top if, uh, you know, if you're not basically not doing anything other than the World Championship, I guess. Now, uh, who have we got here? Phil. Phil Spivey. So I, I'd call him Spivy before, but he's, his name is Spivey. He's actually spelt that out for me. Uh, oh, yes, he says, uh, It's been refreshing to see Jack Jones perform so well at the Crucible. He plays without a tie, which I assume is a good reason. I wondered in such situations whether it would be fairer to at least offer the opponent the option of doing the same. Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, the, it, you have to wear one if, unless you have a, a doctor's note, which I assume Jack does. Um, would it be fair if, if the other player didn't? Well, maybe that would start a contagion of nobody wearing them. And that could be, you know, that could be the end of everything. 
uh, also retires at the Masters. The players wore normal ties in the afternoon and bow ties at night. Judge Trump made the quite reasonable complaint that a normal tie is a hindrance. So actually, is it actually mandatory for them to follow this dress code? Or could a player choose to wear a bow tie for afternoon sessions? I think the Masters has become that you have to wear a normal tie in the afternoon. Trump's uh, was quite sort of thick. The knot was quite thick. He could have got a thinner tie, I think, which would have been less of a hindrance. Uh, anyway, Phil says, I've wondered for years about the fact that one of the Crucible quarterfinals plays back-to-back sessions on the Wednesday. I'd always assumed this was to avoid the somewhat unlikely scenario of the afternoon-evening sessions being voided due to all four matches finishing a session early. Don't think this has ever happened. Point Neil Folds also made in commentary. However, John Higgins seemed to think this was so the press had one finished match, uh, the one ending on the Wednesday morning to report on. Do you know the real reason? Do you think it would be fairer to schedule matches so players don't have two sessions back-to-back? It's not the end of the world, but I think it would be better to schedule these sessions differently. Um, <coughs> it's not for the press, it's for TV. It's for TV as a finish each session. Um, although the BBC on Wednesday mornings go off pretty quickly to um, Prime Minister's questions. They have to leave about quarter past eleven for that. Um, but that it's not this is a written press, it's, it's TV. Is it fair? Probably not, is the answer. It prob- probably would be better for everyone, certainly the players, if they did have that, that, that um, bit of time. Because the, who, on the Tuesday night, someone has to come back Wednesday morning, so don't get you know a lot of sleep between sessions. And then, as you say, you've got that back-to-back session. But I think a lot of it is attitude. I mean, Mark Selby didn't seem to care about it. He just got on with it. So, you know, it's one of those things... Will it change? I don't know, but uh, that's the reason anyway. Uh, there were a lot of mobile phones that went off this year, um, and Scott Pease has written in. He says, Snooker is obviously unusually requiring the audience to mind their noise levels. Watching the two-table set of it seems like unexpected cheers and laughs are simply an occupational hazard for the players, so the referees try to keep the noise in check. The referees have a stu- few stop phrases for handling the different types of audience noise. Thank you, settle down, along with an assertively raised arm could clearly stop a rampaging bull. Please switch your devices off, clearly does nothing. I was wondering, though, does quietly as possible, please, thank you, do anything? As a TV viewer, I can't tell. To me, it seems to just add a more disruptive noise to the noise and possibly rankle the audience, but I'm not a professional snooker player. Uh, just on that, I mean, I think the referees are trying their best to sort of just quieten things down and maybe the sort of short, sharp shock, just say, you know, a, quite a loud sort of uh, exultation for people to... Uh, be quiet, maybe they think that works. Anyway, he says, speaking of mobile devices, I think they could possibly decrease the frequency of the devices going off with some diff- different tactics. There are various possibilities for why devices go off. A few I can think of are, one group is the people don't care and nothing can be done. A second, which is which I was almost a part of, is the why bother nobody calls me group. Yes, I was at the show... Uh, I had to double-check this sentence, but I think it makes sense. Yes, I was at a show of predatory birds, where they requested phones be turned off to avoid scaring the birds. And But for snooker, wouldn't have bothered. I think an approach to this group would be along the lines of, if you don't think it'll go off, then you shouldn't be bothered if it's on silent. Third group has to do with people not understanding their devices. Modern phones are little little computers. My mid-range phone has four different volumes. Media volume, call volume, ring and notification volume, and alarm volume. It could also vibrate. The sound settings page has 18 settings, some with their own settings pages. I'm not even an old person and they get confused. I think that providing more detailed instruction on how to make sure all sound is off would help. Maybe Rob Walker could encourage the tech unsure audience members to scope out their nearest young person and make a new friend. Thank you, Scott. Well, because <coughs> we had the alarm going off on the middle Sunday, which was a bizarre business, um, and it seemed to keep going off. Uh, if you want noise, by the way, the, the, after, the after party uh, was noisy. My word... Um, but that's someone who's sort of crept into middle age talking. Uh, the young people seem to enjoy it. Sam Kelly from Oldham. That was where the first Maximum was made uh, in 1982 by Steve Davis. But he's not writing about that. He says, I'm writing this on the evening of the Selby Allen semi-final. Well, I've nothing else to occupy my thoughts as Mark Selby is busy slowly, ever so slowly, sucking the life out of not only the Crucible Theatre, but millions of TV sets around the world. This is particularly noticeable because earlier today we enjoyed one of the most enjoyable demonstrations of open, skillful, competitive snooker by an inspired Luca Brissell against the excellent C. Wee. Here's my contention. If every player played like Mark Selby, they'd be out of a job. Professional sportsmen women are only professional because sufficient numbers of people wish to pay to watch them play. In other words, they're in the entertainment business. It's obviously more important to Mark Selby that he thwarts his opponent than that he actually plays better snooker than him. In fact, and I swear I'm not making this up, John Verg on BBC Commentary just said... 
He's trying to mess the table up pure and simple. He'd probably take this as a compliment. As I write, it's 1410 to sell, but it looks like he's succeeded in frustrating the stuffing out of Mark Allen. So we'll spend the next two days trying to wring another tedious win, this time against Brussel. He must be very proud, but this is not a spectator, but this is not spectator sport. He only has a job, a very lucrative job at this level, because most of his peers don't play the way he does, because if they did, then hardly anyone would want to watch. I don't expect you to agree with me, and you may not even want to read this out on the podcast, but writing this has occupied a few minutes of a frustrating, dull evening. Snooker is by far my favourite sport to watch, but Mark Selby spoils it for me, and I know that from a great many others. <coughs> well, Sam, you very tragically put your view there. Um, of course, 14-10, Mark Allen came back at him. Mark Allen fell into the trap uh, that Luca Purcell did not, in my opinion, which is trying to play a particular style of game uh, against someone who's better at it uh, than him. What Luca Purcell did was just came out and went for it. But any, I would... I would confound anybody to say that the way Selby played on the final night was not entertaining. He contributed to a very entertaining final. He made big breaks himself. Um, and here's the thing. Listen, you're perfectly entitled. You don't like a player's style of play. You're perfectly entitled to say that. But I will say this. Mark Selby is a very decent person. I spoke to him last night at the party. He just lost in the world final. You know, it's the biggest match you can play. I know he's won it four times, but he just lost. He couldn't have been nicer, friendlier. Um... And I don't think he'd mind me saying he, he, he just felt he'd been outplayed, basically. He said Luca in the afternoon was sensational. So nothing really he could have done. He thought that, you know, when he came back to 16-15, he had a very good chance of winning. But he was very gracious to say that Luca, you know, stood up to the pressure that he was putting him under. And Mark didn't tie the table up in the evening. He, he, play, he went for his shots. He was potting some great long balls, made some good breaks. Um, and, yeah, he was in perfect form at the, at the party. Um, he got them to put We Are The Champions on for Luca. On the, you know, I mean, who, who else would do that, honestly? And you saw him every day at stage door, mingling with the fans. You know, he's a proper sort of snooker person. You know, he doesn't separate himself. We're very lucky to have him, I think, at the top of the sport. And he does play a particular style of snooker. And you need all sorts, OK? You need all sorts. You need contrasts. You need rivalries. And he contributes massively. And he's not just a grinder. He is a very heavy scorer. But more importantly than any of that, he's a perfectly decent person. And I thought the way he conducted himself last night was absolutely brilliant. And it's clear from what he was saying, what Luca was saying, that Mark's wife has not been well, and that's their private business. But, you know, he's had a lot of concerns off table. We know he's had problems in other areas, mental health as well. You know, and he's come through those but you know that you can't sort of wave a magic wand and, and say they'll never return he's been through a lot in his life and I have total and utter respect for him for what he's achieved and for the way he conducts himself <clears throat> now one of the big issues for the championship and I did call this before it started by the way I did mention it months ago the empty seats because of the Century Club if you have a hospitality suite you know in another part of the crucible with white wine and canapes and no doubt, you know, other other treats, prawn sandwiches, all the rest, then people are not going to be in their seats. And we saw rows of empty seats, and it's really annoyed people. Matt Tarrant, empty seats on the front row of the semi-finals. Whatever the reason, it's a bad look. Will Snooker Tour want a few people to hang around and fill the seats when unoccupied? I'm available at short notice, and I have a mate who'll help out too. Keith McLaughlin on this says... Uh, the Century Club ticket holder, and he went to the Crucible, he said the Century Club ticket holders have kind of ruined the experience, I feel, in a few ways. Firstly, they're in and out of their seats like yo-yos the whole time, constantly moving around. I was listening to some of them in the queue beforehand, and they genuinely don't have a clue about snooker. They're just there because it's an event. Secondly, it's an awful look on TV. The amount of times the front couple of rows are empty. Even last night in the final, there are empty seats. Snooker's a working-class sport, and I find this is moving away from the grassroots of the game. The person on the last show how, asked how the protesters got front row seats, but Will Snooker helped them out with the protest. I feel as you could buy Century Club seats for that game only a few days beforehand. We could have gone to Mark Selby's v Matt Seltz game on the Wednesday, but after the experience of the Tuesday night, I wasn't overly pushed. So we headed off to the Peak District for a lovely day out. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll make some other points, but we're going to stick on this subject for now. We've had a, I'll, 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 we've had a lot of emails on the same subject, so I'll, I'll, I won't sort of read them all out because they're all making the same point. Um, but it ties into another point, which is, uh, I think we've got from Mark Williams, not that one. Uh, I'll read this one out. 
Well, I'll read the whole thing out. It says, it's Sunday morning and it's the final setup for Luca and Mark. Here's hoping for more continued excitement. Not sure I'm able for much more. What a championship it's been so far and with some unbelievable matches and things happen. I'm sure you'll have plenty of emails on this, so I'll leave it there. Utterly brilliant championship. Can I please personally thank you for helping me and others out? In an email of mine you read out a few months back, you advised how best to purchase tickets for the 2024 World Championship. And just this morning, I've managed to bag eight days' worth of tickets, capturing the quarter semis and all sessions of the final. So I'm happy is an understatement. Can't wait to come along next year and enjoy the Cruise Club of Sheffield in all its glory and hopefully meet a few players, referees and commentators such as yourself. Thank you. On the subject of the World Championship, can you please shed any light on the rumour that Qatar is offering and looking to host the event in the future? How genuine is this? What are your thoughts and the players' general thoughts on this if it were to become a reality and move away from the Crucible? There's been a lot of noise on Twitter regarding this lately. Any information on this hot topic, much appreciated. Well, Mark, see, this ties into the business with the Century Club tickets. The Crucible is a 980-seat venue. This is the World Championship. There's been widespread feeling for a couple of decades, really, that it's not big enough. What it has, of course, is the history. It has, you know, it is the absolute mecca for the game. Everyone loves it. People come from around the world to visit it. But it's simple supply and demand economics, free market economics, that because it's such a hot ticket, they can charge now a lot more money. And people are being priced out. Um, I spoke to some snooker fans at The Graduate. And that's a pub in, 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 in opposite the Crucible, and they were saying, you know, they're struggling to come next year because they can't afford the tickets. The prices are going up and up and up, and it's very difficult to keep justifying shelling out, not just the tickets, but the hotels, and you've got to feed and water yourself and all the rest of it. <clears throat> so in terms of moving to Qatar, this was a story that the press did with Barry Hearn. Um, there was there was not very little detail, which say, says to me that this is essentially Barry trying to get the attention of Sheffield City Council, because he wants them to put more money into the World Championship. Um, I mean, there's a number of issues here. Firstly, as long as the BBC are the host broadcasters, the World Championship will be held in the UK. It won't move to Qatar. The production costs would skyrocket. People say, oh, well, they showed the World Cup. That's completely different. They weren't the host broadcasters for the World Cup. They, they would have to cover the production costs of the whole event. They're not going to want to do that in Qatar. They're going to do it in Britain. So the question is, where, if it's not going to be at the Crucible... Where does it go to? Does it stay in Sheffield? Is there a better venue in Sheffield? To me, it's not about Sheffield, it's about the Crucible. You might as well move it to somewhere else in the country. To me, the only justification for moving it is you can sell it as something different, but spectacular. So, for example, if you had it at the Royal Albert Hall, nobody could argue that isn't a spectacular venue. But if you just have it in some kind of, you know, souped-up arena somewhere, it's not the World Championship we know. I'd, I'd like it to stay at the Crucible, but I say that as someone who never paid a penny piece to go there. In fact, I get paid to go there. So I can understand why spectators are sort of torn. They love the Crucible, but a lot of them are being priced out of it. Now, in terms of the Century Club, that's a, a, a revenue stream. It's a money spinner. They made a lot of money. We're talking six figures quite comfortably on the Century Club. So if they can make that with only sort of, you know, a limited number of seats for those people, imagine what they could make if they had a huge hospitality area. It is a business, World Snooker Tour, that money goes back into snooker. So these are the considerations. You've got the sentiment and the history that we all love, but you've also got the hard cash that they need and the opportunity to make it into a bigger event. The contract runs out 2027. I wouldn't like to call what's going to happen. It won't go to Qatar, but it will, will it stay in the UK? Uh, sorry, will it, will it stay in Sheffield or will it move to somewhere else in the UK? I would say percentage-wise right now, I would predict that it's more likely to stay at the Crucible than not, but maybe not by that much. You know, it could almost be a Brexit kind of situation, 52-48. I would say it's more likely to stay there because I think Sheffield City Council will try and pull out the stops. They're not going to build a second Crucible and all that nonsense that we had last year, but they'll try and make it financially as attractive as possible. But it's not a certainty, and we mustn't take these things for granted. It could, that era could be coming to an end. It really could. And, and I think that the fact that Barry is slightly backtracked, even though Barry's supposed to have retired. I mean, he was presenting the trophy last night and he did a speech at the hearing, at the, uh, at the hearing, at the, uh, the after show party. So, uh, it suggests that his retirement maybe isn't quite as, uh, well, as retiring as, as, as that description suggests. Uh, but th that story is obviously over the next couple of years 
going to play out. Just on the after show party, by the way, it was very strict this year. It was no good either, but that's a separate. It never is any good. But, <laughs> but no, because it's just a lot of noisy people drinking, you know, which, yeah. Uh, maybe I'm just getting old. I mean, there were times when I was younger, I'd stay there all night, but I sort of sloped off quite early this year. Um, but anyway, it was quite strict. They tried to limit the numbers. But as a result, a lot of the Belgian journalists that came over to cover Luca Brussel's victory were, were not essentially permitted to, to enter. And I thought that was a terrible shame. It's not really, um, you know, you're trying to open up this new market. It's not really the way forward. But anyway, that's uh, nobody. Ca- I understand nobody really cares who goes to the party and who doesn't. Now, I had the great pleasure to meet Stephen Forbes and his partner Michelle in The Graduate. Uh, they got a picture. He, he'd been he'd emailed to say that uh, he was coming, and indeed he did. Um, and he said, uh, he thanks me for the photo. He said, we, we'd, we'd been to the Crucible that evening to witness an extraordinary session that ended 1410 to see. Little did we know that Brussels' momentum would continue the following day to win 1715 in the greatest ever Crucible comeback. We're keen to hear your thoughts on the potential psychological impact that C's crucible performances and experiences could have on his snooker career. Whilst we appreciate it's difficult to make predictions with one so young, do you expect C to make the later stages of ranking events consistently go on further than the World Championship and reach a final in the next few years? Or could Brussels come back in the semis inflict lasting damage? Our view is C's talent and temperament suggest he'll establish himself as a consistent top 16 player and multiple ranking event winner over the next decade. But as to whether he'll ever manage to win the World Championship, it's difficult to say when you consider the number of talented players who've never managed to be, win the big one. <clears throat> well, it's difficult, actually. I was thinking about Lu Hong, Lu Hong Hao because he became only the second player ever to be whitewashed at the Crucible. The first was Eddie Charlton. He was in his 60s. He was essentially at the end of his career. But Lu Hong Hao, a very young man, and little has been seen of him since then. Uh, he's off the tour. He's not got back on. I think we sort of sometimes gloss over a little bit too much, actually, the, the, the potential for psychological damage of playing such a high-profile match, being in complete control of it and losing. It's easy to say, oh, he's younger, brush it off, but he's not bound to, actually. He's got to, at some point, think, well, that was a great chance to get to the final. The good news is, when you're that young, I guess you feel you've got a lot more chances, and he will do, but it's very difficult to say. I mean, because he, he'd been in one quarter-final before, so it's quite difficult to say, oh, he'll be a multiple winner, because... He's got to win one event before he can be considered a multiple winner. But he played brilliantly in that tournament. I know he didn't get to the final, but he played brilliantly. I wish him all the best because he's great to watch. has a very calm demeanour, but that calmness was challenged and ultimately he did feel it against Brussel. But Brussel, let's give him credit, he played brilliantly in that match. Another one of his great sort of bursts of inspiration that our own Phil Yates talked about. <coughs> Malcolm Johnson... He says, watching the semi-finals on Saturday, I've had a radical thought. With the clear and obvious difference between the two matches, one being highly entertaining, the other almost coma-inducing, would it be wise for World Snooker and Matchroom to introduce a UFC-style match of the round with a cash prize who has the most entertaining match? The Purcell C game is a shining example of what snooker can be and some shape should be as it tries to grow its audience around the globe. I can't for one second believe that any American audience would watch the marathon snooze-fest between Selby and Allen that they've ground themselves into. You make some more points. Your essential point is: should there be a reward, a financial reward for match of the round? The problem is, it could that could be open to a lot of um, chicanery, couldn't it? Because how do you decide? Is there a vote? Well, that could be kind of, you know, kind of uh, people jump on the bandwagon and, and, and influence. It, it sounds like it's not it's not a bad idea, but it just sounds like a nightmare to organise. Do you have a panel of people who decide it? Who's on the panel? What relationship do they have to the players? Etc. Etc. So, can of worms territory, I think, Malcolm. But thank you for uh, suggesting it, nonetheless. We'll get on to the the random meetings with snooker players, shall we? Because, uh, well, actually, no. We'll do Joe Richards first because well, this is actually about a different podcast, uh, not my own, but it's quite interesting, I think. Joe says, "I just listened to the Talking Snooker podcast. It touched me a little bit in terms of how you prejudge people." You'd think from looking... Now, this is Brian, Coventry shirt Brian, who's a regular attendee. He was on... I haven't actually... I've not actually heard this podcast yet. I I do listen, obviously, to Talking Snooker, but just because of everything's been going on, I've not yet listened to it, but I will do. But anyway, Brian was on there. He says, looking at Brian when he wears football shirts at the snooker, you'd think he'd want to be the centre of attention. Listening to that podcast made me realise how it couldn't be further from the truth. What a down-to-earth, likeable bloke. Sad to hear he's been through so much, but great to hear he's powered through and that he's found the guts to talk out on the podcast. It actually makes you respect him a lot. It's crazy how speaking out 
seems to feel like a weakness when him speaking out actually makes him come across like a really strong man. Fair play to him. If you ever see him, I'll buy him a beer and have a chat to him about that. Having an interest in sport gives us all such a sense of belonging, especially such a niche sport like snooker. It actually gives me that core, that good core grounding in my life. For example, I can think of countless moments in my life where I've gone through various breakups with girlfriends or been chasing various women or various career goals. But despite all highs and lows, I've had snooker. There's that consistency throughout my life to prop me up from any lows and that's also and that to also be able to take for granted when I've had various highs. I'll be definitely buying a ticket for the World Championship, encouraging a couple of mates to come with me next year. After listening to Brian, we'll be making the most of some quality time with a few friends and making a real weekend of it. I'd say to any fellow snooker fans who are listening to this podcast and feeling a bit low to just try to get through it. We all feel sorry for ourselves at times, but just try and find that bit of confidence and realise that there are some good people out there that want you to do well and genuinely care. Whatever the cause of your low point, whether you're going through a breakup with a girl that you think is one of a kind, trust me, she isn't. Or if you think, if you don't think you can get over the loss of a loved one, trust me, it will get better. Go and buy yourself a ticket to the snooker. And even if you can't find a mate that wants to go with you, go yourself and have a bit of me time with the game that we all love to steal a phrase from Nick and Phil. Women, friends, family and jobs may come and go, but the World Snooker Championship will be there for you every year without fail. So that's one thing in your life that is definitely worth sticking around for, and I'll happily share that mutual love with Brian and any other snooker fan for the rest of my life. I hope you're happy in yourself too, by the way, Dave. If you're ever feeling a bit flat, just know that you're that apart from you being a really talented journalist, you have a positive impact on me and your top bloke. Well, that's very kind of you, Joe. And uh, I think everybody goes through periods where, you know, they're feeling happy and maybe not so happy, and that's obviously affected by things that are happening in your life but you're right there are these sort of bedrocks that are there for you and the world snooker championship definitely cheers everybody up uh, we all like snooker but this tournament in particular just cheers everybody up and uh, i know people experience a bit of a sort of almost a sort of withdrawal symptoms when when it's over um but just embrace the fact that we had it for 17 days and indeed before that with the qualifying gary mckenzie he says, this is now the banal meetings with snooker players, a sensation on the podcast. Um, he says, many years ago, I worked for an energy comparison company. I talked through options for people looking to save money, and who came on the line but none other than Mr. Rob Walker. He was very polite and friendly, and after I confirmed all the details, I managed to spend a few minutes talking to him about snooker, and he couldn't have been nicer. Also on the way to the train station in Edinburgh, I walked past Chris Small. Uh, <coughs> a very concise and to the point. Rob, now Rob, of course, is Rob's the MC. He's doing uh, a charity uh, run this summer in June from John O'Groats to Land's End in memory of friends uh, that he's uh, has, he's known that have passed away in the last sort of 18 months or so. And it's the Absent Friends Tour. And you can donate to Rob on his Just Giving page. If you go to his Twitter, Rob Walker's Twitter, you can see the Just Giving details. And uh, that's classic Rob, really. You know, he's, he's trying to turn something that's very sad into a positive. And my word, when you're when you're actually in the arena watching him warm up the crowd, the smiles on the faces you see because of the atmosphere that he creates there, he's a big part of why the Crucible has continued to be such a great experience for audiences. He's a lot to do with that, and I credit him for that, and do support Rob's uh, charity endeavour for a cause. It's he's donating to the Jesse May, which is Will Snooker Tour's official. Um, charity and also uh, brain tumor charity as well. So uh, do uh, do check that out if you can. Uh, now then, who else have we got here? Lee Isaacs. I felt compelled to email as I recently had an interaction with a snooker player that definitely qualifies as banal. I was staying in Sheffield for the World Championship. As I was heading down the stairs to reception, I found myself in the way of Robert Milkins on the Tuesday evening, where he was restarting his first round match against Joe Perry. I moved out of his way. And just after he passed me, I looked back and said, Good luck tonight, Rob. Without looking back, he replied in that wonderful West Country lilt, Cheers, mate. As we know, he didn't have the best start to the match that evening, and I can't help but feel it was perhaps my fault. When arriving at the Crucible in the company of Mother Isaacs, who was on crutches, we were asked if we would like to sit on the front row, as obviously there were issues with the ticket sales century club members staying in hospitality. I was wearing a rather bright shirt, and do hope it wasn't this that somehow put Robert Milkins off his stride. Next morning, I saw him at breakfast... Uh, but thought it best not to bother him again. I can't see myself dining out on this story much, 
but hopefully it's a satisfactory, dull contribution. <laughs> well, you promised it, and you delivered, Lee, so <laughs> this is exactly what we're after. Exactly what we're after. Now, last week we left on, on a little bit of a cliffhanger, uh, because we, there was a story about Jimmy White being seen uh, with, with lemons uh, twice in Sheffield. Liam McMullen has asked for an update. Well, there is an update. I did look into this, and essentially Jimmy uh, has found a drink he likes at night, just to sort of wind down, and he likes to have a couple of slices of lemon in it, so he bought some lemons. It's nothing sinister. It's it's actually quite straightforward. He likes to have slices of lemons in a drink. And by the way, it's Jimmy's birthday today, sixty-one. So uh, we of course wish the great man all the best. Uh, now then, uh, Assad from Burnley. I was watching. I'm oh, sorry. I was visiting a cousin in Bradford in 1997 as a 15-year-old lad. We did what we normally do and went down to Kudos to play some snooker. Only this time, James Watt and I was practising on the match table. Starstruck, I didn't have the guts to go up to him, but watched him from afar. However, something unexpected happened. On the telly was the Masters, and a streaker comes up to, comes onto the screen, so to speak. <laughs> the, the club stopped and rushed to the TV. I took this opportunity to sidle up to James Wattenar, in what could only be described as entering his personal space. He gave me a bombastic side-eye, and we watched the shenanigans on the telly together but he was lovely enough to give me an autograph later. Well, that, that story, in the end, uh, worked out nicely. Uh, let's go back to James Beard, because he's given some details here of uh, a couple of interactions he had with players. Uh, so two interactions with players on LinkedIn, OK? So this is, this is, well, not even in the real world, on LinkedIn in 2021. He says, Shakespeare isn't, so they probably fall into the category of banal interactions with snooker players. I've reproduced the conversation in full, so that your listeners can make up their own minds. The first was Peter Devlin during the shootout in February. Now, I'm going to have to play all parts here, OK? So I'm playing the part of James and Peter. I'm not going to put on accents. I don't know what James's accent is. And also, it would be, uh, frankly, catastrophic. So anyway, it starts with James says... It, James speaking, he says, Bad luck, Peter. You have certainly made an impression. The Eurosport commentators think you're great. All the best. James. Peter... And by the way, of course, I say accents... This is all being typed on the screen anyway. But anyway, Peter says, Thanks, James. Spurred on my success in getting a response from a player two weeks later, after Stuart Bingham beat Judd Trump 6-5 in the first round of the Players' Championship, I decided to send him a congratulatory message. In fact, I, I've ruined this, haven't I? Sorry, Peter didn't say that. Peter said, Thanks, James. OK? <laughs> Could start again, but we've been going for 45 minutes. So, so Peter Devlin said, Thanks, James. And then James... Continues. He says, spurred on my, by my success again response, two weeks later, after Bingham beat Trump in the Players' Championship, I decided to send him a congratulatory message. Anyone still following this? Congratulations. So this is what this is what James wrote. He said, well done for last night, Stuart. Great win, an excellent break building. Good luck in the quarterfinals, James. Seven hours later, he replied. So this is Stuart's reply. Cheers, James. <laughs> so he's had two replies there. One, thanks, James, and two, cheers, James. He says, I shall cherish these conversations. I doubt there are many sports in the world where it's possible to directly engage with the players. Yes, I mean, you say engage. They, they didn't exactly uh, gush with the uh, responses, but they did respond, and that's important. Uh, we'll leave that for now, I think. Um, Dave Priest, he said, Quick question. I noticed you, along with Ron Flores from QTracker, are the statisticians for the BBC. I never knew or noticed this. Please elaborate. Well, I will elaborate, Dave. Yes, um... I am. I've done it for about 20 years, or the, the close enough, um, supplying sort of things like centuries and player biography details and head-to-heads and prize money and all that sort of thing. And, yeah, it's something I've, I, that they have engaged me to do for a while, and I continue to do it. I uh, do it for Eurosport as well and ITV. Um, so that's it, really. There's no, no sort of secrecy around it. My name's, not, as you say, is on the credits. Uh Scott Pease has written in again, even about the noise earlier. He said, I subscribed to DAZN to watch the World Championship and just cancelled my subscription only to find that they recently implemented a 30 days notice policy, meaning I'll be charged for the next 30 days. So to anyone else who signed up to DAZN just for this, cancel your subscriptions now to minimise the damage. In the interest of keeping your podcast family friendly, I'll describe myself as rather upset and leave it at that. Okay, well that's for our friends who are following it on there. Uh, that's a good one from Graham Allsop. He says, it's a great stuff at the World Championship. I've now fully switched to Eurosport from the BBC, in part due to your good self. 
Uh, well, that's got me kind of you. It says, having watched Lucas seal an amazing victory, got me thinking about balls. No sniggering. He said, uh, at the very least, I would have sneaked the cue ball into my pocket as a memento, as I've never seen this done. It made me think, is the winner giving the match ball set? So no need to just take any. I don't know about that. I think often they're sort of signed for charity or given away for charity. A lot of people claim to have the black that Dennis Taylor potted, including Lord Archer. And we know how truthful he always was. Um, but no one really knows for sure. In fact, sorry, I, that's, I got that wrong. It wasn't Lord Archer. It was Robert Maxwell. I think the same description applies, though. Uh, I apologise there to Lord Archer for dragging him into that anecdote. Um, <clears throat> Graham continues, Finally one for you. Have you ever had a plan at the Crucible? Could you stop yourself from commentating on it all the way through? I haven't, Graham. I mean, that would be a lifetime ambition, obviously, to have a... I, I did speak to them about one, but uh, a lot of people do that. Obviously, uh, you know, there's only so many plays they can put on, but uh, no is the answer. Um, <laughs> not yet, I'll put, put it that way. Not yet, but that would be uh, obviously incredible. Uh, <clears throat> we've got a few last orders here, last knockings. Uh, firstly from... Well, it says Anon, so... That speaks for itself, really. We don't know who it's from. But anyway, he says, I tried to make this a short email, but ended on a bit of a rant. I thought I'd send it anyway as a means of airing these ideas. My takeaways, based on visiting the Crucible this year for the first time since the pandemic, number one, bring back the Humour Masters, at least one ranking tournament in Belgium. Uh, Antwerp is ideal next season. Yes, well, as I say, that I'm sure that's being looked at. You know, I'm sure it is. Number two, the World Championship Trophy is iconic. Kazoo picked up on this and used it as their logo for the sponsorship. But the trophy shape silhouette doesn't appear to be trademarked or commoditized. Indeed, the first result when I searched for the trophy was something selling full-size replicas on eBay. Uh, other iconic trophies such as the Open, Golf, FA Cup, Wimbledon's Men Trophy, etc. There should be a trademark logo that could be used for merchandise and an emoji. It's very odd to see official accounts, senior people in snooker, using a generic trophy icon to congratulate Luca. It's a very interesting point, and one I can guarantee... No one from World Snooker Tour would have considered because it's so specific. You would need to really sort of think of that. So, interesting point. Uh, number three, merchandise offering at the Crucible is appalling, selling exactly the same tat that was available at tournaments 15 years ago. Given the price of tickets and age profile of people attending, there's a fortune to be made. For example, tasteful merchandise with the trophy as a logo. Again, look at the Open Golf, for example. Uh, also, the mugs with snooker balls... Uh, that the BBC team were using on screen. It'll be interesting to know how much Jason Francis took at the Ronnie O'Sullivan shop near the Crucible. The money is there, it just needs products. <clears throat> Number four. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't venture to the merchandise stand, so I can't really comment on that, but I, I know it's not well well regarded, I, I know that. Number four. Tickets for 2024 20, are expensive, uh, but they were selling out in minutes. This and the overall experience of the venue, which feels incredibly, incredibly old-fashioned and not in a good way, leads me to the gr regrettable conclusion that the event has outgrown the Crucible. It needs a 2,000-seat venue with a hospitality area like the Masters, uh, not the front row seats and wedding reception type set up that is the, the Century Club. Well, I did sort of say that um, earlier, that that, is the, that would be the reason for leaving, and I do feel we are heading that way. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with it. Uh, I think everyone knows I'm a fan of the Crucible, but that seems to be where the sort of mood music is, if you like. Um, so we may... We may end up heading that way. We shall see. I'm going to end now. I apologise if I haven't read your email out. It's nothing personal, but I'm just trying to wrap up um, and get on with other things. So we have here Addy from Germany. After an exhausting 17 days sitting in front of the telly. I hope you enjoyed the last 17 days as much as I did. I can't remember having watched this much snooker on TV for years, all culminating in arguably one of the best finals ever. I have to admit, I was unsure about Luca until half an hour before the end. A well-deserved win, having beaten Williams, O'Sullivan and Selby in succession. No one can ever argue about that. It's worth saying, just chipping in there. I mean, that's adding up the titles between the 14 world titles between those three. So, I mean, he's beaten three of the real giants of the Crucible. He says, Snooker's in a good state. Don't tell me anything different. I barely heard anything about the match-fitting allegations since it was mentioned by the presenters on day one. There's probably more to come, but we don't need to spoil the party just yet. On to other matters. Uh, having had so much mainstream snooker issues to talk about it's time for something more niche again in regard to female snooker referees I find it very curious that the majority of them are from Eastern Europe currently listed by the WPBC are the following Desha Shlava Boshilova and Proletina Belichkova from Bulgaria Tatiana Wollaston Anastasia Tuzikava and Tatiana Kuzomkina from Belarus 
Margotza Kanieska and Monika Sulkowska from Poland, Eva Poskoksilova from the Czech Republic. Then we have Michael Kessler, Louis Kratz from Germany, Hilda Moens from Belgium, Peggy Lee from China. By my account, that means over 65% of all female WST referees are from Eastern Europe, 25% from Western, or in this case, mainland Europe, and 10%, shout out for Peggy, for accounting for 20% from China. We keep blabbing on about how the sport is too UK-centric when it comes to players and tournaments. Why is it then there's not a single female referee from anywhere in the UK, even when somewhere <coughs> from somewhere remaining in the Commonwealth? Why isn't trailblazing Michaela Tab from Scotland inspire more, more English, Scottish, Welsh, Irish or Northern Irish women to get into it? Well, <laughs> um, I don't know the answer uh, to that, to be honest. Um, it, it's not something I've thought about. Um, yeah, as simple as that, really. Maybe, as it's a different culture, maybe in Britain, there's a lot of women over the years, girls have not really seen it as a sport for women because they don't see women play on TV. So maybe it therefore follows that they, you know, don't want to get involved in refereeing. But uh, it's an interesting point, and if anyone's got any ideas behind that, let us know. I'm going to wrap up there. There's been a lot of talking. 250 episodes is a lot of talking. So it's time to stop for now. It's not the end. I'll be back, don't worry about that. But it's the end of this series, if I can be grand enough to call it that. Um, we'll be back sometime in the summer. I'm going to, I think everyone needs a break after the rigours of the World Championship. It's been a long season. I've been very fortunate, very, very fortunate to basically work on every event on the World Snooker Tour in one way or another. It's been a very interesting season, unpredictable season. I've had some surprise winners. I think a lot of the sort of the big hitters have underperformed. Um, and that's something that you know, they're going to have to look at as the new season dawns. But that can all look after itself. For now, we're basking in the, the glory of Luca Purcell's win. I want to thank uh, all the people who've corresponded on the podcast. And indeed, many of them that I met in Sheffield. It was great to meet so many podcast listeners in Sheffield. Um, nice bunch. You know, you get a certain view of snooker fans on, on sort of Twitter, which is not really reflective of how people actually are in real life, because that's true of all social media. People are very friendly, very nice. They would enjoy the sport, as we all do. David Burney, I must mention, from Canada. He was in the press room. Great guy. Um, he, here's the thing. He gave me uh, a program from one of their events in Canada. And, uh, there was, it was a very nice program. They had a word search, and they had a crossword. And I was the answer to, the, to one of the crossword questions. The question was, who is the host of the Snooker Scene podcast? <laughs> so I was a, with life ambition, I was a crossword answer. Uh, so thank you to David. I met Dave Daly from the Oxbillards Club. Oh, that's, uh, unfortunately, only very briefly. I, I was hoping to catch up with him again, but uh, you know, uh, I didn't quite manage that. But it was nice to meet him and various other people as well. Um, we are a community. We, here's the thing, okay? And I said this to someone the other day. It is like a family, and sometimes families fall out, but ultimately we all love each other, and that is the snooker world. Really, it's one big family. And we have our moments where we're not getting on. But generally, this is true, I think, of the snooker world. Pretty much anyone would do anything for anybody because we recognise that we're all part of something and we all have a, a part to play uh, in it. So if you've gone along to watch or just tune in on the TV, you are part of that community. And that's very special and it's very important because we have a very good product which we all care about and we all want to succeed. So... They're my final words, um, except to say, do keep the emails coming in, but obviously, you know, it'll take a time before we're back again. Uh, snooker scene podcast at mail.com. That's snooker scene podcast at mail.com if you want to get in contact with proud members of the sports social network. Um, that's it really. So Q school, I guess beckons. I'm sure we're going to hear the results of the, the match fixing in due course. That's not a nice thing, but it has to be aired. Um, and then we'll be into next season, Championship League, the first event, and so on and so on and so on. Luca Purcell, though the night, the week, the year belongs to him. He's the world champion. What a wonderful thing that is. So congratulations again. Thanks for listening. And as we always say, one final time, until next ne until next time, whenever that is, episode 251 beckons at some point, it's goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Ch -ch 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 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.